And the third one, which is very timely for today, is the net zero agenda. The impact of climate change and the um, global efforts to counteract it are um, impacting upon all our sectors, all areas of society, and will continue to for the next uh, decades. And therefore, that's the third of the three gigantic changes. Hello everyone and welcome to the Student Lawyer podcast series. Whether you're at school, sixth form, university, thinking about a career in law or exploring law careers, you're in the right place. We are the one-stop shop for student lawyers. If you'd like to join the Student Lawyer as a writer, please email hello at thestudentlawyer.com. This episode is sponsored by the University of Law. What really sets the University of Law apart from other universities is its belief that its students should learn in a realistic, professional and contemporary context. They focus exclusively on practice-based training and give students access to their extensive career service and jobs vacancy database as soon as they accept a place with them. Through the University of Law's pro bono programme, law students can hone their skills by working on real cases before they graduate. The University of Law offers a range of postgraduate legal training and master's degrees designed by qualified experts to help students advance at any stage of their career. Their courses are employment focused, honing key skills in a teaching environment based on real legal practice. Part-time and online study options are also available on many of their courses to help students work and study at the same time. To find out more about the courses on offer, click the link in the description box of the podcast. Hello everybody, welcome to this episode of The Student Lawyer. My name is Stephanie and I am today's host. With us today is Andrew White. Um, Andrew has been a partner for 20 years at the international commercial and technology firm Bird & Bird. After working for many years in commercial IP and IT law, he now has a full-time role leading Bird & Bird's workshops and seminars for the firm's major clients. Andrew has led over 750 client events to date for many thousands from all over the world and has received a commendation for the project in the Financial Times prestigious Innovative Lawyer Awards. During the episode, Andrew and I will be discussing his career journey and why he chose to be involved in his current quite unusual role. He'll highlight commercial issues which are affecting Bird and Bird's clients and the issues aspiring lawyers should keep up to date with. Based on his experience mentoring over 100 Bird and Bird trainees for many years, Andrew will suggest five qualities of a successful trainee. And he'll also share his advice on delivering engaging legal presentations and how people can overcome their fear of public speaking. Thank you so much for joining us, Andrew. I am so delighted to have you on the show. And um, as our listeners will have just heard, we have got a lot to catch up on, I think. So um, it's a pleasure to be with you, Stephanie, and a pleasure to join your listeners. Thank you very much. So I'm going to get stuck into the questions because um, we have a lot to get through. So my first question is, um, can you please tell us uh, why the legal industry was particularly appealing to you when choosing your profession and the reasons for becoming a commercial lawyer? Sure. Um, That's a great question to start. I, I experienced 
um, a zigzag sort of journey, a love-hate relationship with the law. And there were various points where I thought there is no way I'm going to be what I am now. Um, I think there were three um, influences which led me towards law. Um, firstly, I do have a commitment to justice, and it comes partly from my um, background and tradition within the um, Orthodox uh, Jewish community, where principles of justice are extremely important. And I felt that um, through pursuing law, I could express my commitment to justice. Uh, secondly, um, my teachers said, and I often didn't believe this, but they said it was true that I had quite a clear and logical mind, and therefore uh, I would be able to apply that attribute in law. And um, also I was useless at business. I did one of those vocational studies uh, tests when I was 17 and I got the lowest possible score for business. It was like 2%. So that uh, ruled out a whole field of activity for me. Um, but law seemed to be something that I was fairly adept at. And um, thirdly, and most importantly, I guess, I've been fascinated with technology and with innovation since I was a kid. I didn't have much of a scientific head. I couldn't understand the detailed operation, but I, I was fascinated by how um, life sciences and software were, and, and other technologies were changing the world. And I felt that if I focused on law and its interplay with technology, that would be a very interesting area. So really from the start, I aimed to give myself a broad uh, commercial and corporate training, but with uh, intellectual property and IT uh, in the back of my mind always. And in due course, after I qualified, which was at Herbert Smith, I moved to um, Bird and Bird, which even at that stage, um, 30 years ago, had a very strong reputation within IP and IT. That's very interesting. I think it's um, I think it's fantastic how you had such um, an interest in in IP uh, those many years ago, and uh, you, I mean, it's you must have seen it really grow in these past thirty years. Yeah, when I started, IP was a niche subject. Mm. There were some barristers and a few solicitors firms that knew about IP, but it was considered quite a mis mystifying topic. Um, a lot of that mystique has reduced. There is still some mystique around IP, but basically it's become mainstream because in the digital economy and in the knowledge economy, IP is the fundamental asset which creates value and um, business activity. Mm -hmm. So, um, yes, it's the world of IP has changed tremendously, but the challenges and the opportunities within the field of commercial IP are, and commercial IT are as great as they've ever been. So how, how did you become very aware of, of IP? Was it just a... Was it reading a lot? How, how did you really understand that, you know, I can combine this interest with um, with my interest in law? Yeah, uh, it was a it was a young barrister who I sat down and had coffee with one day um, and I was talking through with him what direction I should take. And he highlighted this emerging field called IP law, which I confess I'd never heard of before. I went out and bought myself a cheap paperback book by a scholar called Jeremy Phillips, and that was called Introduction to IP. And from that moment, I never looked back. Uh, Jeremy, as it so happens, is, uh, has, is a good friend today. And I think he's also been instrumental in setting up this extraordinary blog called IP Cat, which is now the go-to blog for IP um, um, enthusiasts around the world. But at any rate, it was that it was that book that kindled my interest. And 
I, um, as I say, I from that moment on, I, I decided to pursue the IP uh, route. But, and this is an important point, um, I didn't want to get narrow too quickly. So I wanted to find out about the world of corporate and finance and real estate and litigation. And I had tremendous training experience at uh, Herbert Smith in all of those areas before moving into IP. Well, it sounds like a really interesting and fascinating journey that you've had uh, to get where you are today. Um, and I will check out that blog as well. Um, so what is your main area of focus and what does your role involve? Yeah, I mean, the, the journey that I've just highlighted is the journey to ha- to my newly qualified position. I've had a journey which has carried on for 30 years uh, since then. You see, I started at Bird & Bird as a newly qualified working in advisory and commercial um, IP and IT work. Um, and for 10 years, I worked at Bird and & Bird and subsequently at Ashurst and at Allen & Overy, um, handling transactional IP and IT. And I have to say, I had fantastic commercial experience and great colleagues at both of those other firms. But I eventually returned to Bird & Bird to take up a knowledge role. And the reason I took up the role as the first head of know-how for Bird & Bird was because I wanted to find a different route and a different direction within the profession. I felt that clients and colleagues had an appetite for doing law a little bit different, and in particular, for sharing knowledge in an empowering sort of way. And so I, I, I set up a knowledge project at Bird & Bird which, with which we could engage with our clients through training and a written documentation and tools, and it would also be um, capable of energizing colleagues within Bird & Bird at the same time. And I decided to focus on contract law and contract as it applies to IP and IT. In my final few years of traditional fee earning, I'd seen a lot of what we call reinventing of the wheel going on among our clients, where they would repeatedly ask the same sorts of questions about contractual issues like, under this collaboration agreement, what what liabilities can we exclude? What does termination involve? What does it involve to commit to best endeavours to deliver some software by a certain date? And I set up a contract know-how service in order to answer those questions in a sort of streamlined and efficient way. And then on the top of that, turned it into a client training project. So basically, 20 years ago, I moved from traditional fee earning into client education and client knowledge. And that's been my role since. The 750 events um, have been over the last 15 years, and they've been a blend of one-to-one events with major clients, uh, both in the UK and very international, um, sector events for sectors like um, sports, entertainment and media and aviation, life sciences, energy and environment, and uh, tech and comms and finance. Uh, and also I'm now a, a fellow of the Side Business School in Oxford. And through through that f- a platform, I engage with uh, internet business executives on contracting. And I use Bird and Bird uh, know-how and tools in order to um, help to educate the participants in that uh, business school course. So I, 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 that's an overview of the role, and it's really quite a different role from how I started out, but I'm very grateful to Bird and Bird for giving the opportunity to pursue this role, and I have to say that I'm as busy and uh, as I've ever been and uh, find it extremely rewarding and stimulating. I mean, 
everything it sounds like you are a true definition of you know the trusted advisor getting the information that your clients want and need to know um Mm. before they go ahead and and make make the deals is that yeah, well the, the the if i had to reduce the service that i produce to provide to one word it's quality and i'm not saying that to um congratulate myself because a lot of thought and a lot of input uh, is provided by by colleagues as well but at the end of the day i need to try to distill and bust the jargon around vast amount of law in order to make the law both accessible and deployable by our clients. And we're talking about clients, you know, for example, a couple of weeks ago, client with um, offices in 25 countries, where I'm talking about English contract law for, for participants from Bolivia, Vietnam, Russia, India, South Africa. I mean, a true global uh, um, logistics company. Um, for example. So, yeah, it's, uh, it's very kind of you to say that I'm a trusted advisor. My task is actually to create the, the rapport, the positive rapport, which these sorts of events can generate so that my colleagues can deepen the relationship with that client after the event. Mm -hmm. So I see myself as an opportunity generator um, rather than the actual advisor, because once I've delivered an event, I then move on to the next. I don't deliver the legal advice. That's my colleague's uh, responsibility and it's their opportunity rather than mine. I see. If I were to do that as well, I would never be able to do the 750 events because I would be completely immersed in single clients. Mm -hmm. It's a team effort, isn't it? Very much so. so how did your role as a partner differ from the other partners? I mean, I we've just briefly touched on it, but if you could yes. go into a little bit more detail. Yeah, I, as you say, we, we've already alluded to it. Um, I'm not a fee-earning lawyer. I generate opportunities. That's my job. And if I'm not generating opportunities, I'm not performing. Um, my second role is to create opportunities for uh, and openings, opening of doors for others. You know, with big client organizations in whatever sector they might be, it's often quite difficult to open doors. Clients are busy. They have many law firms cultivating them. They have lots of demands, but sometimes they don't feel that the lawyers are necessary on a wavelength with them. Therefore, I look to my events and my colleagues look to my events in order to open doors and create receptiveness among our clients. So my role is different because I'm not a fee owner, but my role is shared with colleagues in that we want to deliver the best possible service and we want to do it in a collaborative way. I see. I see. Um, to be honest, that sounds like a very fun role, if I'm if I'm being honest, to, to be able to be, I guess, on the front line with the client. Uh, maintaining those relationships it is a stimulating role um it does give me a window into a tremendous um amount of the client's world because mm. i you know i was in um i was outside london uh, two weeks ago all day with one of the companies that's involved in the covid vaccine rollout program wow. i had six hours with them face to face and by the end of it i had learned so much about the their operations it was absolutely fascinating and um the, the next day was one of the largest um aviation companies in the world now that wasn't face to face that was over zoom but 
you know, when you do something like a workshop, people let down their guard a bit. Uh, they're, they're more informal, they're more engaging, more revealing. And one can pick up a lot of client insight and client intelligence through those conversations and learn a lot from them. So in fact, I see all of these events not as a one-way imparting of information by myself to them, but as a two-way sharing of experience and insight. We just have different types of insight and experience. And I would also say that with Bird and Bird, which is a very sector-focused firm, as is well known, it's particularly important for us to be conversant with the, um, the technologies that our firms are often at the cutting edge of developing and the industry and regulatory issues that they face. And these sorts of events assist in um, staying at the cutting edge. Fascinating. Um, so... Is there a very memorable deal that you have worked on or a particular relationship that you have nurtured and maintained that um, has stuck out to you? Yeah, the, um, I'll give you just a brief answer to this. It'll be slightly surprising. Um, for me, every event is special and every event is new. And I couldn't generate the energy that I need to deliver unless I treated everyone as special. So in a way, all 750 have been equally memorable deals. And if you ask me about the first events that I ever ran, I remember them reasonably vividly because that's just the way I think. Mm -hmm. And therefore, I really can't single out a single transaction. Mm -hmm. um, if I had to single out a single memorable legal um, event in my life, it's actually a pro bono project that I was involved with when I was when I rejoined Bird and Bird, I'd been involved with the road safety charity um, in the months before I rejoined Bird and Bird. And they asked me to write a report on the reform of road safety laws. Mm -hmm. And I did it in my spare time. I didn't want it to interfere with my start at Bird and Bird. So I really basically worked through the nights <laughs> to deliver this report. And I felt passionately about the cause of road safety. And I used what whatever skills I'd developed by that stage, I was 10 years qualified to write the report, which I subsequently presented in Parliament to a load of MPs and lobbyists and police and others. And to this day, I would say that that project remains the project that I'm most proud of. And I should also say that doing something like a pro bono project gave me, and I'm sure it gives others as well, a sense of equilibrium. Because as I mentioned at the start, you know, the original motivation for coming into law was the quest for justice. Mm -hmm. Now, you can't always quest for justice when you're helping the world's largest aviation or media companies talking about their sponsorship contracts or their um, aircraft maintenance contracts. But you can promote the cause of justice when you're doing a pro bono project of that nature. So that's the project I would actually single out. Nice. Um, I do think it's, it's incredible when... Um, the commercial lawyers get the chance to get involved in pro bono uh, pro bono uh, casework. Mm. Um, yeah, I, I from doing uh, research on various law firms, it does seem to me like there is a lot more of it going on, or whether it's just being talked about more. Um, I don't know, but it, it does it does seem like there's a, a lot of it going on at the moment. Yes. Yes, I, I, I would say so. And there's there's many different avenues for pro bono work. My former PA who worked with me for many years, she's a good friend. Uh, she she um, assisted in maths teaching in a school and she said it was the most fulfilling activity she undertook. Uh, lawyers, senior and junior across 
Burdenberg are involved in all sorts of pro bono work. And many law firms, the UK firms, the US firms, they, they, they take great pride and understandably in the pro bono work they, they undertake. Um, and I, I think, you know, as lawyers, we are privileged. We've had a great educational opportunities. We are, um, have professional responsibilities and are practicing certificates and our credentials, and we can go quite far and be well remunerated. We need to give back. You know, I, I see that as part and parcel of my work. And if I didn't, if I didn't do pro bono work, I wouldn't be able to do these 750 seminars. Yeah, I do agree that it is very important. Hmm. Um, so moving on to my next question. Uh, which commercial issues are currently affecting your clients and how are they being affected? Um, yeah, Stephanie, this is a massive question and I'm going to give it to you in very distilled form. Um, three issues stand out. One is recovery from COVID and the impact of COVID socially, in terms of health, in terms of education, finance, government intervention, and innovation and collaboration. That's massive, the impact of COVID and its aftermath. The second huge issue is digitalization, which has been going on for 25 or 30 years, but has been accelerated as a result of COVID. And it's not just digitalization in the obvious sectors, but it's digitalization in areas like energy, agriculture, aviation, and life sciences, where the impact of the just gigantic amounts of raw computing power, plus the artificial intelligence capabilities that are layered on top, the impact of these is going to be massive in the, in the years ahead. I saw a professor of um, gastroenterology over the weekend, actually, and he said, I'm sorry I haven't been able to come back to you, but I'm just absorbed with our AI project at the university. And I said, it's, is it big? And he said, it's going to take over. He, he, was, he was hardly able to find the adjectives to describe the impact. So, uh, and he's a very grounded guy who doesn't get carried away with a sort of technology hype. So that's the second issue, digitalization. And the third one, which is very timely for today, is the net zero agenda. Um, the impact of climate change and the um, global efforts to counteract it are um, impacting upon all our sectors, all areas of society, and will continue to for the next uh, decades. And therefore, that's the third of the three gigantic changes. Um, so recovery from COVID, digitalization, and the net zero agenda. Thank you for sharing that. Um, so I have a second part to that question. Sure. Are these uh, issues key for aspiring bird and bird trainees to keep up to date with? Um, and if so, how can they how can they analyze these kind of issues with their lawyers hats on? Right. Well, there's two parts to that. Analyze the issues. Re read the FT. Read the Economist. Uh, there's a magazine that I get, which is very good, called the MIT Technology Review. It's from MIT, the um, leading university in the States. A fantastic magazine, both online and hard copy. Um, so people have different interests and passions and different ways of following the developments. Um, one needs to be generally conversant with the business news, but also the social implications of all of these developments, because this, is, this isn't just, uh, these aren't just business stories, of course. Um, when it comes to analysing with a lawyer's hat on, um, I can only really speak from my own personal experience, and other lawyers might differ. But I would actually try not to focus too much on the legal dimensions of a particular sector, particularly in your early years. I would focus on being a great lawyer, 
And if you focus on being a great lawyer with the right tools and skills, and side by side with that, you are following your field of um, interest, the two will naturally converge. And you'll be able to bring your legal skills to bear on the net zero agenda or on digitalization. But I've observed over many, many years that many of our best sector lawyers are the best lawyers. They're the ones who, if you gave them any legal problem or asked for any sort of legal solution, they'd find you a good legal solution, even if it was in a completely different area, because it's the way they think. And I shouldn't, I think, I think we can't overestimate the value of traits like objectivity, clear thinking, uh, integrity, um, quality of analysis, um, as traits which you can develop as a lawyer, and then you can bring those to bear in any of the sectors, and certainly in areas like digitalization or AI, we, we, we need objectivity, we need ability to see issues dispassionately, we need ethics, we need values, every bit as, every bit as much as we do uh, um, line-to-nine knowledge of the latest European Union uh, guidance on um, uh, rollout of AI. So I would say, follow your, follow your sectors, Keep passionate, but concentrate on being a great lawyer, and then two will naturally come together as you develop. Before we get into the second half of the episode, I'd like to take this opportunity to talk about the sponsors of today's show and the law school that I chose to study my LPC at, and that's the University of Law. The University of Law believes in training students for the real world from the moment they accept a place. Their experienced career service and award-winning pro bono clinics offer students the chance to get real-life experience from the start. They offer a range of postgraduate legal training and master's degrees designed by qualified experts to help students advance at any stage of their career. Their courses are employment-focused, honing key skills in a teaching environment based on real legal practice. Part-time and online study options are also available on many of their courses to help students work and study at the same time. To find out more about the courses on offer, click the link in the description box of the podcast. I think that's fantastic advice. Thank you. Thank you ever so much for sharing that. Um, so that, again, links on to my next question. Uh, what makes a great trainee and newly qualified sister? I mean, I appreciate that you have just kind of explained, but if you could maybe, you know, I don't know, go into a little bit more detail. Yeah, look, Stephanie, uh, you, you won't be surprised by this, but I've actually got a an acronym to answer this because I'll, I'd like to give you five five attributes. Again, this is just my personal view. I have mentored and worked with over 100 trainees and they have contributed background know-how and research in many of the seminars that I've led. Um, and I reduce it down to five qualities and the acronym is REACH, R-E-A-C-H. R stands for reliability. First quality of a trainee, as far as I'm concerned, is being dependable, being reliable. I often ask myself, if I was in a really tough spot with a top client having to prepare it, notice what sort of trainee would I like by my side and he or she could give me the help that I need and deliver the deliver what I need. And that's reliability. And that gives um, you know more senior people tremendous comfort and support. Um, the second attribute, E, is energy. Um, have positive energy. Remember that you convey your personality through how you are, as well as what you say and what you think. And um, many of my colleagues and myself, you can pick up quite quickly the energized um, people with a positive vibe around them. And it does make a big difference. The second part to energy, actually, is self is, is learning. 
I think it's very important for trainees to have an appetite for learning, to be curious and to admit their fallibility and that they don't know. And in fact, I think that all lawyers should be doing this. I think senior partners should be admitting their fallibility in areas they don't know. But I think the more energy you can put into learning, the the better a trainee you'll be. The third uh, letter is A, uh, attention to detail. Now, this is a cliche for lawyers, uh, senior and junior, but it is very important to have attention to detail. Detail in the legal research you do, the legal uh, work you carry out, the communication with clients. Um, But it is also um, attention to how other people function. Uh, Notice how other people, you know, um, people with great amount of experience um, communicate, how they uh, analyze an issue and observe, you know, have powers of observation and observe the detail. You know, there's a cliche that the devil is in the detail, but actually within law, the quality is in the detail. And therefore, one needs to have a, a sense of attention to detail. You can be a big picture person, but start by training yourself in attention to detail. I must say, I wasn't very good at this in the past. And this was one of the main reasons I thought I wouldn't be able to become a lawyer, because I was thinking about the big picture so often that I couldn't concentrate. So I trained myself in how to concentrate. And over the course of years, I've managed, partly by the use of a um, yellow highlighter pen, to actually develop um, sort of sufficient attention to detail. By the way, this wasn't some prearranged prop. It just happens to be by my desk, so I've just picked it up. But I didn't. I didn't sort of plan for picking up a yellow highlighter. I think that everybody's got one of those uh, yellow highlighters. I know. Well, funny desk. enough, I'm about to. I'm about to tell you a quick story about that because the fourth trait is consideration. Oh well, there we go. Um, consideration is the C out of reach. Um, in everything you do as a trainee, think about the recipient whether it's a client, whether it's a colleague, whether it's a junior or senior person within the organization, um, what are their circumstances? What do they need to know? In what form do they need to know it? By when? And in particular, if you, for example, have a struggle to meet a deadline, communicate with them and explain to them your circumstances. Don't take them by surprise. Um, The other aspect to consideration is that it's often the small personal touches that make the biggest difference to clients. At the event I was at recently, which I mentioned earlier, um, I thought to myself, we're going to have delegates on a face-to-face event for most of the day. We're taking delegate packs. How about I take some yellow highlighters with so that in addition to their pens, they can have yellow highlighters to mark up the packs. We happen to have a load of yellow highlighters lying around in the office, so I took a bundle of them. I can't tell you how successful it was just simply providing these yellow highlighters for all the delegates. We had people, you know, high-fiving, you know, wow, I've got the yellow highlighter. It'll make a difference to the seminar. So that's consideration. It's simple human touches. And then lastly, the H is actually human touch. As a trainee, bring of your own personality your humor, your interests, your passions, bring it to the workplace. You don't absorb yourself in work. I, as an Orthodox Jew, have a very strong uh, ethic of keeping work and outside work separate. It's very important not to allow work to take over your life. And religiously, it's not impossible because we have the Jewish Sabbath, we have Jewish festivals, we have Jewish cultural expectations and requirements, um, the family um, priorities, etc. Nevertheless, bring some of your human interests to work and that'll enrich colleagues around you and it'll also um, um, 
help to bring out the best in you. I brought out the example earlier of how I was involved with pro bono work, and that was my human uh, contribution, and that helped to enrich and, um, and empower me to do the client contract training. So that's the acronym REACH, reliability, energy, um, attention to detail, consideration, and human touch. Fantastic. I am inspired by that. Oh, really? Well, yeah, I'm going to take, um, I mean, you know, it's, it's, it's things that you do kind of know. I mean, saying that, I don't think you can assume that everybody knows what qualities, you know, um, solicitors need to bring to the table. I mean, it's exactly why we're having this conversation now. But it's, I, I think that um, by having having an acumen like that, it is just so helpful um, and just so helpful to um make you or help you just remember these things I mean mm. by having a discussion about you know a Chinese list and these energy attention to detail consideration it's just so much easier to have this kind of checklist that you've you've made uh, to help Chinese so um yeah I think that's I think that's very helpful no, well I mean if I look any idea that you can't reduce to an acronym isn't an idea <laughs> nowadays is it so um so I thought reach would be helpful but as I, as I said in as a way to introduce the concept, this is just my personal view. And if you speak to others, you might you might get um, issues like commerciality, which are of course yeah. important, uh, international vision. Um, I'll come to those later if we have time. But um, that's just the five that I've chosen. I mean, you could tie those commerciality um, aspects into consideration, thinking you know what does your client need, and your client needs yes. you to be very commercially aware. Um, yes. Yeah, I mean, from what I said earlier, it's it's almost it almost goes without saying that you need commerciality. I mean, if you're not interested in the world of business and you're not in the interested in you know the field of bird and bird in the world of innovation, then you you're you're not going to be energetic. You're not going to give attention to detail because your heart's not in it. And if your heart's not in it, then you're you're facing an obstacle straight away. Um, so the commerciality didn't make it into my reach because it almost is the prerequisite for all of these. I agree. Thank you for that. Uh, so moving now into the part of the interview where we're going to talk about uh, your presentation and seminar focus. So my first question in relation to the presentations is, uh, what does it mean to build knowledge-based client relationships? How do you do it so well? And have your clients' needs changed over the past 10 years or so? I'll leave it at that for now. Right, right. Well, on knowledge-based client relationships, um, that's a right, quite a fancy expression. I use it myself and others use the same expression. Basically, it's what I described before. It's the taking of knowledge and the demystifying of it and the packaging of it to empower clients. And through that activity, whether it's through seminars or through bulletins or through other types of uh, reports or written material, blogs, um, you... You help to bring clients closer. You help to inspire them, guide them, give them confidence. And uh, above all, you respect the fact, and I think this is very important within the field that I'm involved with, you respect the fact that they don't want dependency on their lawyers. They want um, sophisticated know-how tools, which are smart and which can enable them to operate effectively. Um, If law firms show this attitude of helpfulness and uh, understanding for the needs of clients, then I think it increases the trust and rapport between clients and lawyer. And I mean, I've seen this happen over the 
decades, I've seen uh, you know countless clients becoming closer to Bird and Bird through the fact that we have uh, helpfully, hopefully, um, delivered a know-how or a training solution for them, which resonated with them and their people. Um, so it's it's using knowledge, not as a sort of um, capability statement, but as something you actually share. And I heard this once from a senior Magic Circle uh, partner who said, um, it's not just a question of telling clients what you know, it's showing them how you apply it, right? So winning clients and winning, expending your brand is not just about what you know, but it's sharing with them how you um, how you apply it and the attitude around knowledge. So that in a nutshell is knowledge-based relationships. Um, how have client changes uh, needs changed? Um, three areas. Firstly, much more international. When I started out within training in 2007, most of the audiences were UK and the, the content was UK in uh, contract law. Now the audience is entirely global. The, the appetite is still for uh, English contract law because it's a global currency to people from literally all four corners of the world. So that's the, that's the biggest change. It's the internationalization. The second big change is there is an increasing appetite among our clients to understand our values. You know, what does Burden Bird's purpose uh, entail? How do we pursue the sorts of values that they care about? Whether it's a financial institution with its microfinance projects or it is software companies educating large amounts of children in um, uh, rural areas of Africa, in IT or, uh, you know, innumerable other social projects. Um, how, what are our values and how well attuned are we to theirs? And the third area where I've seen change, and this is going to accelerate, is in smart solutions around law. In other words, how law firms are thinking to streamline their processes and their ways of delivering and packaging law so that it is more cost effective, um, no less reliable than it currently is, and can also be deployed at scale um, to benefit clients. So I think it's, it's what I call intelligent streamlining of the law. So those are three big changes. Uh, and I expect to see those three changes, the international mindedness, the values and the streamlining, those will accelerate in the years ahead. Do you predict that any that their needs will change off of that at all or those will accelerate and, and be well there? look the, um Stephanie we you know I don't need you don't need me to tell you don't need me to point out that this is a world of great uncertainty and unpredictability. So there will be other needs as well. But in terms of their core expectations from their lawyers, I would say that the international um mindedness and the way how culturally attuned we are to working globally that won't change the values focus won't change and i can't really seeing the uh, i can't really see the expectation to deliver smarter solutions changing either yeah yeah well thank you for sharing that's very interesting what are your top tips for presenting an engaging interesting and useful seminar um and can these tips be transferred to say a training contract um interview yeah, well, look, I, I'm my own biggest critic, and I'm never satisfied with my own presentation technique. But I guess the fact that I've delivered a lot means that someone out there must think that I'm okay at it. So I'll tell you these, but with a due, you know, a, a full dose of humility. Um, firstly, speak to your strengths. If you if you want to build up your presentation technique, don't allow yourself to be 
landed with topics or themes that you don't really have much interest in, uh, because that can feel like a burden and just uh, accentuate your nerves. Um, have a structure to what you're going to say and a, uh, an agenda. Um, it's ironic, Stephanie. I know we're running over time, and I, you know, one of the things that I actually think is very important within presentations is, uh, I guess, with interviews as well, is to stick to time. Um, I think I, with every presentation I deliver, I have a timed agenda, especially important online, and I seek to stick to it quite um, uh, um, meticulously. Mm -hmm. The third um, technique is to distill down into key messages and to know what it is that you want to say. Um, the key messages are the ones that you would convey to someone who you happen to bump into, um, you know, at the water cooler and he or she asks you, what's your presentation about? Um, so, you know, distill down into key messages. That's a key part of, a, of a, an engaging event. Um, have some stories to um, en en enrich the audience with real life examples rather than simply reciting the law. Um, when outlining new laws, this is the next one, or new laws or cases, I always find it beneficial to give the counter argument. People, I think, remember things better when they've heard the opposite case. And so I'll, I'll often use uh, a court case, um, the story around a court case, to provide the twists, almost like telling the story in a dramatic fashion in order to help to impress upon people what the arguments and counter arguments were. And it'll be the same with a new regulatory development. You know, if um, a new privacy or intellectual property regulation is coming through, what are the arguments against the measure as much as what are the arguments for? Um, draw out the wisdom of the audience. One can do that with a variety of means of interaction. And then lastly, um, bring some humour and some irreverence into the session. I always do that. I mean, it's really rather sad to admit it, but I even have this file called Humour. And it's got a series of stories, uh, bloopers, which are the uh, accidental faux pas which happen in, um, in court cases. And sometimes at the end of a very intensive seminar, we'll share some humour just to sort of relax because we've all been through a very intense intellectual experience. And we all just need to have a bit of a laugh. I think that's fantastic. Uh, you know, we had a, uh, well, the, the bloopers, like, like the, the witness that's asked, uh, what's your date of birth? And he says, uh, 27th of July. And the, um, the advocate asks, what year? And he just says, every year. <laughs> <laughs> that is There's loads funny. of bloopers like that. It's just funny. To, it's funny to just share them. That's a good one. Uh, just going back to one of your, um, one of your points, the counter arguments. Yeah. So, Oh, actually, this one may take, uh, tie into the real life examples as well. So if you're perhaps in a training contract interview and you're giving your real life examples of, I don't know, something that you've read in the FT News um, showing your commercial awareness, mm. bringing in a counter argument of that, I don't know, piece of information that you might be providing on, say, shareholder activism yeah, a good way to incorporate that kind of stuff yeah. to showing that you understand both sides of the story and yeah. that you can as well remain impartial. Absolutely. The objectivity and the ability to understand, and I know truth is a, is a somewhat diluted word nowadays or a you know, controversial word, but actually some sort of sense of objectivity and impartiality is very valuable. Yeah. And one of the ways in which you can convey that is through being able to express arguments on both sides yeah. with equal clarity 
Obviously, our advocates need to be able to do that, or ideally in court. But for all legal advisors, I think it's a valuable trait to have. And therefore, you should read the minority judgments, for example, in major court cases, as well as the majority. The other particular reason why this is so important is within the area of technology, there is a lot of hype. Now, a lot of the hype is justified. But some of the hype is results in unwise decisions being taken around investment, around regulation, etc. And therefore, I see our role as lawyers not to um, amplify the hype, but to actually provide a dispassionate set of voices around the hype in order to explain with clarity and objectivity what the technology implications actually are and what the concerns might be about particular areas of uh, technology, whether it's uh, communication and online communication over the internet, or it's um, autonomous vehicles, or you know drones, or countless other areas of technology, there are very important ethical and economic arguments in many different um, directions, and it's important to try to grasp all of them rather than just one particular narrative. Thank you for that. So, how? How can people um, overcome a fear of public speaking? Yeah, yeah. But before I answer that, I realised that there was one mini question I didn't answer, which I'll very quickly do, which was about how to apply some of this to trainee interviews. I just, I'll, I've actually written out in front of me three tips: um, stru- have a structure, have some key messages, and convey energy and passion within your within your interviews. So that's structure, messages, and passion. Thank you for that. Um, As far as overcoming fear of public speaking is concerned, um, again, I've written out a set of tips here, and there's um, a few of them. Firstly, I would recommend start small. Um, Seize opportunities, just uh, internal group meetings, briefings with just a few people around the table, small small Zoom events. People develop a phobia for public speaking. And in fact, there's a medical term for it, I believe, a psychological term. I don't remember what it is, but it's uh, very long with lots of syllables. Um, To overcome that inhibition about public speaking, start early, seize every opportunity and um, start small. Secondly, I would recommend getting a presentation buddy or a mentor. Ask a colleague a friend, and he or she doesn't have to be uh, senior to you, it could be a peer or someone junior to you, ask them in advance to tell you after your presentation two things they liked and one thing you could improve. And if you have a buddy, then you could be on a cycle of continual improvement in your presentations. The converse happens, which is that you don't get sufficient coaching or training, and therefore bad habits, like, for example, speaking too fast or always looking at notes or reading out, they become ingrained and harder to shift. So I would say getting a presentation buddy is very helpful. Thirdly, prepare and practice. There simply is no um, substitute for that. The more preparation you invest, the, the, the better it'll come across. I am um, you know, I've in the last um, two weeks, I've had to work till two in the morning on a couple of occasions just to prepare one mini module from one session that I was involved with. And, uh, you know, people say I'm quite uh, knowledgeable, which is probably untrue, but they say it. Um, but the truth is, you know, I don't feel prepared until I've actually checked every relevant sentence in a particular judgment to make sure that I really understand it. The better you prepare, the more it'll come across and the more authenticity and conviction you'll convey. 
and practice uh, comes into that as well. Um, and then lastly, be, I would say be kind to yourself. What do I mean by this? When you're giving a presentation, arrive early. Don't, don't join just at the last moment because you'll be flustered. In the first two or three minutes, you'll be just composing your mind. Arrive early, engage with people, don't allow the tension to build. You know, you and I, Stephanie, had a few you know, a quick conversation before this interview. It was very nice to hear about your project, but it's also nice for me because it helps to calm me and to um, get the adrenaline under control. Whereas what happens all too often is people, particularly junior people, they, are, they get nervous and the way in which they set up those five minutes before the presentation accentuates the nerves. So be kind to yourself, give yourself time, always do some breathing exercises, uh, just deep breathing, which is actually quite a hard discipline, and take some fresh air as well. I always go for a walk before I, um, before I give presentations, though on one occasion at a major bank in Scotland, I went for a walk and then locked myself out, so I couldn't get back into oh, the Oh, no. Yes, uh, so, so all, if you're going to go for a walk, always make sure you know how to get back in. And... So those are just a few of the tips. Um, start small, um, get a buddy, um, practice and prepare and be kind to yourself. Yeah, I think those are all very, very helpful tips. Um, and just just going back just to one of them. Um, yeah. You mentioned that you and I had like a discussion just before we started recording. I or that I think it's fantastic to have that opportunity to um, speak to the other person or to mm. you know just become familiar with the topic that you're going to uh, be speaking about. I also think that 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 really helps though with just speaking and moving your mouth yes. and getting yes. your mouth used to uh, talking, um, just warming yourself up. I think that's a very helpful point. Yeah, absolutely. I should have said, um, and I alluded to this, that, of course, knowing the audience and knowing what their needs are, their level of um, familiarity with the topic, their appetite to learn more and in what form, that's also very important. And before every event I do, and I've always done this, I always speak to the client or the, the sector group and I find out, you know, where are you coming from on this? What level of um, qualification are the people? How many are in the UK? How, how many are outside the UK? I, I, I find out as much as I possibly can about the audience. But at the, because at the end of the day, every presentation, of whatever context, it's not about you, it's about your audience and it's about what you can give to them. Therefore, the more you can understand about them, the more successful the presentation will be. Before I move on to my next uh, question for you, you have to tell me, did you get in in time? I did because I had another, co I had a colleague who was with me, he travelled up and he he was inside the building. So he, uh, he managed to sort out for me to get back in. But look, that's just a frivolous anecdote. But, um, but uh, I have, I have been in situations where, um, I'm too rushed at the, as the event begins and I notice the negative impact it has on me. You need those first few minutes, impressions are important and those first few minutes are the opportunity to create a good impression. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. Any final words of wisdom? Yeah, final words. Um, well, you're, you'll, have, you'll, have, you'll be able to tell by now that um, I always do things in lists and I've got three final words of wisdom. The first is learn from others. Um, it's so important and it doesn't have to be senior people. You can learn from fellow trainees, juniors, from support staff. I, I, I learn a tremendous amount from our receptionists who are a lovely group of people about their um, diligence and their consideration. So learn, learn from everyone around you. Secondly, don't take shortcuts. 
Um, as a trainee, uh, I had a big uh, appetite to move eventually into intellectual property, but also wanted to deliberately test my comfort zone and work out how, how well I'd be able to function in areas that I didn't feel so naturally comfortable in, like corporate and uh, real estate. And I think it was very helpful to, um, to not take shortcuts and to realize that the more you work, the, the, the more you will find the gems, right? If you think you can just get to the gems, the diamonds straight away, you've taken a shortcut and I don't think it's as valuable or it will feel as fulfilling. I'll just tell you, can I tell you a one minute story on this? Please do. Yeah. Okay. Um, the, um, when, I, when I qualified and joined Bird and Bird, um, I had a I had a real appetite to finally do the intellectual property that had meant so much to me throughout in my imagination and my ambition. And my very first um, matter was for a um, a client that came in quite anxious. And the partner said, Andrew, go and meet this client. I don't exactly know what the problem is, but it's something to do with um, a magazine and a rival magazine being launched with the same title. Uh, and so I went and met up with a client and I walked in and it was the uh, company secretary and the finance director, both uh, American as it so happened. They were very, uh, they were pacing up and down. And I just walked in as a newly qualified. And this was my first responsible matter as a sort of freestanding newly qualified. And they said, oh, we're so upset. And I said, look, I'm afraid I, I haven't had time to find out. Well, he, the partner didn't have time to find, me, find out what's involved. And I thought when I'd heard about magazine titles, it would be something like Time Magazine or Newsweek or The Economist that was having a problem with a rival title. And so I said, look, just tell me, what is your magazine title? And the guy said, Plankton Monthly. So Plankton Monthly, I, I sort of had to sort of sound really fascinated by that, but I'd obviously not heard of Plankton Monthly. It was one of these very heavy-duty academic magazines, which is actually very important for people like shipping and port authorities and marine biology. But Plankton Monthly wasn't a title I'd heard of. But I said, oh, well, you know, what's the issue? And he said, well, they've launched Plankton Weekly. And I said at that point, I said, well, that's outrageous. I mean, you know, within the world of Plankton, that's the most scandalous thing I've heard about for a long time. <laughs> uh, I didn't quite say that, but I kind of thought it to myself. The trainee who I went and told this to afterwards, he said, well, why don't they just form Plankton Fortnightly? And so I said, I don't think Plankton Fortnightly is going to work. But anyway, the upshot is that I did this work for Plankton Monthly and we managed to get Plankton Weekly stopped. Um, the point is, I wanted to do Time Magazine and I wanted to do Newsweek, but actually I was doing Plankton Monthly. But all the skills I needed, I developed through doing the laborious work of Plankton Monthly, and it was very satisfying. The third tip is uh, sustain your vision. Have a vision for yourself, uh, remain grounded, and above all, you've got to believe in yourself as a prospective trainee. And remember, you have got, with your individual attributes, you've got a tremendous amount to offer to the profession, to the clients, and if you wish, to society, society at large. And that's probably the biggest message of all. Believe in yourself and um, maintain a vision for what you can, what you are and what you can be. Andrew, thank you so much for joining us on the show. You have provided the most incredible advice um, and I've really enjoyed chatting with you. So I just want to say thank you for that. Um, and I hope that you will maybe come back and join us on the show another time soon because, you know, I have, I could ask you another 10 or 20 more questions. Um, mm. Thank you, honestly.
Well, no, it's a pleasure. Thank you for being such a receptive uh, interviewer. And uh, I wish everyone listening well with their um, future plans and uh, realising their ambitions and their visions. Thank you very much. And thank you, everybody, for tuning in um, and look forward to uh, seeing you all next time. Thank you. Bye bye. episode is sponsored by the University of Law. What really sets the University of Law apart from other universities is its belief that its students should learn in a realistic, professional and contemporary context. They focus exclusively on practice-based training and give students access to their extensive career service and jobs vacancy database as soon as they accept a place. Through the University of Law's pro bono programme, law students can hone their skills by working on real cases before they graduate. The University of Law offers a range of postgraduate legal training and master's degrees designed by qualified experts to help students advance at any stage of their career. Their courses are employment focused, honing key skills in a teaching environment based on real legal practice. Part-time and online study options are also available on many of their courses to help students work and study at the same time. The University of Law will help you reach your ambitions by delivering an outstanding academic and employment focused experience honing key skills in a teaching environment based on real legal practice. As soon as you begin your studies with ULaw, you'll learn how to think and act like a lawyer. Whether your aspirations are in law or other fields, their courses will balance academic rigour and practical skills so your career starts from day one. To find out more about the courses they have on offer, just click the link in the description box of the podcast. To hear more of the Student Lawyers podcast, hit the subscribe button and leave us a star rating and review. If you would like to join The Student Lawyer as a writer, please email hello at thestudentlawyer.com.